The Gemara seems to say that no, peop- no two people are alike. Kishem shem partzufeim domos, kachem deoseim domos. Just like their um, their faces are not the same, so too their um, their ideas or opinions are not the same. Um, the Gemara never asked me, but if the Gemara would have, I would have said even if two people do look alike, because I have twins who are identical, very hard to tell them apart if they don't want you to. Um, <clears throat> and I think that even though they look alike, they don't think alike. They think very different. So even if they're parts of domos, ain't they oseim domos? That's how different people are. You can grow up in the same room, go to the same school, be in the same class, and you're extremely different. <clears throat> Shlomo Volva used to say something that's mind-boggling. He thought it was mind-boggling. He used to say that there's never, there was never anyone like you before, and there'll never be anyone like you again. So if you don't bring out your uniqueness, it's going to be lost, because there won't be anybody else. There'll be people that be similar, but there won't be anyone exactly the same. And the Mishnah actually says that person is obligated to say that for me the world would have been created. Obviously when it says obligated it wants you to feel a certain responsibility that the whole world would have been created for you. And that's a little bit scary if you think about it. Don't think about it too much that the whole world would have just been created for me, right? If two people are the same, then you can't say that. Only if two people are unique can you say it, right? It makes a big difference when you are different than than another person, right? Then you could say, the world would have been created for me or created for you because we're not exactly the same. But I think that in our, in Judaism, it goes one step further. Actually, there's like two steps here. Um, One is that I get the impression from Pirkei Avot that a teacher is obligated to bring out that uniqueness of the student. It says about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he had five students, and he says, He would count their praises, which is a very strange Mishnah. I mean, it then tells you what each one of them said, so that's very important, but it's not very important to say he would sing their praises. I mean, what am I learning from that? Right? And then it tells you what what it was. So it sounds like from the Mishnah that he counted their praises in the sense because this one was a Yorechet and this one was a Mayana Misgaber. Each one had a certain quality that the other one didn't have and he had to uh, bring it out. I, I just want to share with you a story that was quite um, I was quite taken aback by. I was sitting with my grandfather Rabbi Yaakov and um, goes back probably about 45 years ago, maybe a little bit more. And um, we're sitting and talking about, Rabbi Yaakov uh, had a very extreme idea about always telling the truth. In fact, he used to say the truth, you don't have to say, but you're not allowed to say a lie. Right? You have to sometimes not say the truth, but a lie you're not allowed to say. And there's very famous stories about Rabbi Yaakov, how he avoided lying. That was his thing. You know, so he was very extreme about honesty. 
uh, never lying, honesty in business, whatever it may be, he was very, very, almost obsessed, maybe we would say, with it. Um, and he told me when he was a kid, <clears throat> when he was a kid, he once came late to Cheder. But the date was very significant. He came late on December 25th. Now, he lived in a town called Alhinov, and there was a Jewish side to the town, a non-Jewish side to the town. And um, the teacher, he was in Cheder, he was probably six or seven years old at the time, uh, the teacher obviously had preconceived notions about the guys coming late on December 25th that they went to the non-Jewish neighbor to see the colored candles of the holiday. Today they used to, they would sneak in to see the the bulbs, right? The different colored bulbs. But in those days there were no bulbs, certainly not in Dalhinov, right? So the Rebbe already knew that if a boy comes late, he probably went in the evening to see, and then he woke up late because he was hanging around watching the lights, the candles, different colored candles on the Christmas trees. So the truth of the matter is he came late because he was called to bring a pillow to the bris, to a bris that was happening in Dalhinov, actually a relative of his, so his mother told him to go home and get a pillow for the baby to be on, and he did, that's why he came late. The Rebbe, of course, accused him of of going out, out, you know, out there, and he said, "No, he didn't go to the non-Jewish section." And the Rebbe said, "You lied." So that's not what took me back. Was that Rabbi Yaakov, of course, defended himself that he didn't lie, but he said, and his wife was quite shocked too. He said, "Olama Emes, I'm going to take that Rebbe to a din Torah. I'm going to take him to a din Torah." So for me, there were a number of. One is that you could take someone to a Din Torah in the next world. I thought it only ends in this world, you know, Statue of Limitations. There's not. <laughs> and then, of course, I waited for my grandmother to say, but, you know, what do you want from the Rebbe? He was six years old. So he said, he was like upset when he said it, but he said, a Rebbe has to know his students, and he has to know the Yankel Dalhinova doesn't lie. That's what he said. So he's very demanding of the Rebbe. It's a little bit scary for the Rebbe that the Rebbe has to know what different midos the students have and bring out what they have. But I have to tell you something interesting. In the period when I was going to yeshiva, in Tarvadas, they probably had the three greatest Russian yeshiva. Certainly two were probably outstanding in a way that there were no other Russian yeshivas in New York like that. Okay, in the Mir Yeshiva, in Chaim Berlin, there was nothing. In fact, in Chaim Berlin, we, I had a Rebbe, in Chaim Berlin, who used to ask one of those Rabbeim in Torvadas to make sure he had everything right. I used to see him in the back of the basement. He used to come from my room. His name was Rebellia Chazan. He was considered a Lamdin Atzu. My grandfather said he Kamat never saw a Lamdin like him. He said he doesn't know how to say a Krum of Art. He doesn't know how to say something that doesn't make sense. Right? And he was very well known, Rebellion Chazan. I mean, you guys probably never heard of him, but he was a very famous Talmud of Reborch Ber, and he would tell everybody what Reborch Ber really meant, because you can't understand the Sefer anyway. So, um, there was a fellow, and the other one was Rebzella Gepstein, also a very, very great Lamdin, big Godel Batora. The third one was Rav Pam. Rav Pam was like a little bit younger than them little bit a different category, but they were all very, very well-known Talmud Chachomim. Pam became the Rosh of Tarvadas eventually a number of years later. And my grandfather told me that 
he had a guy in the yeshiva that didn't fit into any one of those three shiurim. Now that's pretty hard to find. And a guy doesn't fit into Rabzal Gepstein shir or Rabzal Yechazan shir or Palm shir. Okay, but he doesn't fit into any of them. And he sat with him for a few hours to see, you know, like if he really would fit in. And Rabbi Yaakov came to the conclusion that that student would not fit in to those shiurim. That he had to learn less in depth and more in breadth, this particular student. So Rabbi Yaakov said to him, listen, I want you to learn Mesech the Brachas without, without any commentaries except Rashi and the Tosfas that are relevant to the page of Gemara. Min Tosfas goes off on a tangent. I don't want you to look at that Tosfas and then I'm going to give you a Fahar. I was once in the house when he was finishing Fahar on Mesech the Sanhedrin with this guy. Right? Um, I was quite impressed because the guy had a Gemara in front of him and Rabbi Yaakov didn't. So I was very impressed with Rabbi Yaakov. He was able to give him Fahar on Sanhedrin without a Gemara in front of him. Um, <clears throat> and I saw that he's testing him on Rashi's and Tosas that are relevant for the Daf, right? And the guy knows his stuff. So uh, he'd gone through a number of Masechtas already. But he was in Tarvadas and he wasn't going to one shear. Rabbi Yaakov was okay with it. You know, it wasn't like he said, I, I really believe that you're right. Actually, he said to Rabbi Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov told me, he said to him, those teachers are not bothered with questions that I ask, and they give answers that I don't know what they're talking about. Right? If you're not bothered with the question, then I don't know if the answer means that much to you. <clears throat> so, this is what he did with the fellow. In fact, by the time Rabbi Yaakov told me the story, his brother had already come to Rabbi Yaakov and asked him to do the same thing for him. Right? So what happened to them, I don't know, years later. But Rabbi Yaakov understood that not everyone fits in. I mean, it could be, it could be that he was impressed. Rabbi Yaakov learned Slabotka Yeshiva. And the altar of Slabotka had different people going to different shiurim. It wasn't only the heads of the yeshiva who gave classes. Even some of the older boys gave classes in the yeshiva. They were big Talmud Chachomim. And he used to send different... He said, I came the same day as Rabbi Aaron Cutler. And after decided I go to Shear X, and Ravon Cutler goes to Shear Y. He doesn't know how he decided it. They had an interview with Ralter Slobodka for maybe an hour. But that's what he decided. So, obviously, a teacher really has to work on knowing what the student needs to bring out their uniqueness. This is uniqueness in Talmud Torah, but there's also uniqueness in other areas of life as well. But I said there's two things. One is that the teacher has to know, and more so, it could be. It could be. I'm not 100% sure. It could very well be, and this is the hard part, is that there's actually an obligation to bring out your uniqueness. Normally, we would say, like, it's Mahadran. It could be like everyone else, you know, bus driver, train driver, whatever it is, you know, whatever you do for a living. Maybe like the next guy. But I have a feeling that if a person doesn't bring out the uniqueness... They haven't fulfilled a certain obligation, actually a Torah obligation. Because it says, you should go in God's ways. And normally we understand it to mean there's a few examples that the Chazal give you, you know, in the Medrashim and in the Mesechtas, they give you a few examples, Mahu Racham, Racham, Mahu Vakacholim. A lot of people think that that's what, that's what all you have to do. No, any time there's a quality of God that we know about, you have to do the same thing. Because going in God's ways means imitating God. So, if God, um, 
if God is unique, I, I have a feeling we're going to say that, there's no two gods, right? It's, if God is unique, then a person has an obligation to be unique. Right? I mean, even even the fellows who never went to yeshiva, if they went to Sunday school, they know the, these words. Right? Everybody who went to Sunday school knows that. Right? Everybody knows that. So it says, He's one. God is one and there's no one to compare God to. So that's the way I always have to be. So if I'm acting like somebody else, right? So I'm not bringing out my uniqueness. So I'm not fulfilling that obligation that I have to have. I once tried to figure out why Rabbi Yaakov liked history. Two things that Rabbi Yaakov stood out that was sort of not beyond like sort of the yeshivish world was... He was into grammar, digduk. That's not such a popular thing in the yeshiva world. Um, and he was also into Jewish history. He loved Jewish history and he loved grammar. So grammar, he said clearly that he doesn't think you could learn Gemara without knowing Aramaic grammar. He doesn't think you could learn Chumash without knowing Hebrew grammar. That's what he said. But with regard to history, he'd still be a good Jew without knowing history. And even though it says, Zechor Yitzchor Yimos Olam, Bidushos Tovadar, right? It's actually a command, Zechor Yimos Olam, right? So I once said, I once made a calculation why Rabbi Yaakov liked history. I was a kid, and um, I got a hold of a book that was written by a fellow in Rasein. It was a big city in Rasein. His name was uh, Meshulam Fischel Bear. Divrei Meshulam. He was a very wealthy man. And, you know, Sfarm weren't so he Today he could print the Sefer like within an hour, right? But in those days, if you printed a Sefer, you had to be a wealthy person or someone really wanted to print your Sefer, right? They were quite expensive, the printing and so on and so forth. So he was a wealthy person from the, se- the city of Rasein. And, um, <clears throat> and he gave Rabbi Yaakov a copy of his Sefer. He used to come in the summer to a place called Sittivyam where my grandfather was the rabbi. And he, I saw in his Sefer, he has a wrote on Gretz, on the works of Jewish history of Gretz. He has like a wrote, of course, critique of Gretz. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I knew that he goes to Rabbi Yaakov every summer and they sit in Shmuz during the summer because that was... My grandfather's town was like a dead town, like in the Catskill Mountains in the winter. But in the summer, it became very lively because it was very beautiful. It had wooded areas and lakes, and therefore the tourists used to come, meaning in those days people had money, they would rent a part of someone's home or a bungalow or something, and they would come there. So I saw that he does a lot of Jewish history um, in the area that he has on Gretz, and he also has certain... Uh, we showed him that we don't know who they are. We tried to figure out who they are. So I saw that he did a lot of research on history. So my assumption, well, he was a lot older than Rabbi Yaakov, that he got Rabbi Yaakov interested in history. So I, I took that guess and I said, Zaidi, you know, I think you're interested in history because you're influenced by Rabbi official there. And he looked at me and he said, he was in a, he visited Eretz Yisrael. He looked at me and he said, Duvesta, that's been Organella Mensch. You don't know I'm an original person? Hmm. Right, so he like got insulted that I said he got influenced by somebody else. He was an original person, 
right? In other words, Rabbi Yaakov brought out in Torah what he thought what he has to bring out in Torah. Whether it's popular, it's not popular, uh, that's what Rabbi Yaakov would, would, his, that would be his gift to the world in Torah, right? So some of it, you know, some of it was less popular, some of it is more popular. We know that, for instance, Rabbi Yaakov was a Goyen Oilam in Gemara. But I, I actually have never seen a share of his in Gemara. But in, in Sichus Musar, that thing gets printed over like every week. But it gets Sichus Musar, right? The answer is that, you know, it, that was his uniqueness. He, that's certainly something unique. First of all, it was very unique that a Rosh Hashiva gave over a Musash and not a Mashkiach. But secondly, in fact, he told somebody. I spoke to uh, Reb David Libor. And his father learned in the mirror. And Reb Chaim Shalavid said, you won't believe it, I give shmuz in every week, he said to, when he visited Eretz Yisrael, because maybe he was a Masnagid the Musar at one point. So, he, he said to him, he actually said, Chaim says, you won't believe, he says to Rabbi Libor, Rabbi Libor was the first rabbi of the young Israel of Woodmere. And he said to him, you won't believe it, I give shmuz in, could you believe it? Right? But that could be, was, that was the Torah that needed to be brought out by Reb Chaim and the other Torah maybe didn't need to be brought out. The Meshachach was said about himself. Dar Sameach said, I wasn't brought down in the world to write Dar Sameach. I was brought down in the world to write the Meshachach. Even though if Dar Sameach is a quite a good book, it's excellent work, right? Uh, but, but, but he says, I was brought down to, to write the, my commentary on the Torah, which is, is quite unique, his commentary on the Torah. So, in other words, these people, you know, wasn't necessarily you had a great Rosh Hashiva, a great rabbi that it was certain aspects of Torah that were meant to bring brought brought out by these people, but I'm talking even in a broader sense. In a broader sense, right? There's our uniqueness, and we have to find that uniqueness and um, and bring it out. We know, like the Avos, you know, Avram is considered. Uh, Amud HaChesed, and Yitzchak is the Amud HaDin, or Amud HaYira, right? And Yaakov is Titin Emes Yaakov. That's what Yaakov always used to say, Titin Emes Yaakov, right? So they brought out different aspects of different types of um, uh, Torah traits, right? Chesed, Emes, Yira, Midas HaDin, right? Um, it's interesting because um, <clears throat> there is a commentary, I don't remember who says it, but there's a commentary that Avram Avinu, when he ha- had no children, he complained to God. Right? And he said, Meshach Basi, the Meshach Eliezer. All I have is a Talmud uh, from Damascus. Eliezer, he's my Talmud. I, I don't have anybody else. That's I, all I have. So Rashi says... Dolu mashke mi Torosu Sharabo. I don't know if he says he gave it to others. He used his Rebbe's Torah and he would give out his Rebbe's Torah. Right? So, somebody asks the question of, wait a minute. He says, all I have is domestic Eliezer. Domestic Eliezer is giving over your Torah perfectly. There's no problem. Right? You don't need anything more than that. All the Torah of Ram, that's what he says. The best thing he does is, Dolu Mashka mi Torosi Shalavra. Right? And he, 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 he 
takes out of the well, the wellsprings of Avram's Torah, and he gives it to others. So he says that's exactly the problem. Is Avram didn't want another Avram. He wanted a Yitzchak. He wanted to be the Sadin. He wanted to be the Samus in order for us to get all the, the genes we need to get. Right? Chesed is an important gene, but you you can't have to get you have to get other genes also. Right? And that's that's what this particular I don't remember what the commentary says. He says, right, all he was, right, and the author of Slobotki used to say when people would ask him, you know, you know, about different students, he would say, I just want to let you know I don't make Cossacks. I don't make Cossacks, right? And when when uh, Rabbi Wine Shlita started a yeshiva in Muncie, he started looking a little bit of a modern yeshiva in Muncie, which at that time was, you know, a little bit controver- controversial. Um, so he went to Rabiakov to ask Rabiakov what he should focus on. And he told him, I think, two or three things. Maybe it was three things. I don't remember right now. I didn't hear from Rabiakov. I heard it from Rabiakov. Um, one of the things he said to him, Rebarel, don't make stone beds. You know what it means not to make stone beds? There's a medrash that in stone, right, one bed had to fit all. So if you were too tall, they used to cut your feet off. And if you were too short, they would stretch you. So he said, you know, when you have children in high school, in high school, don't make stone beds. One bed doesn't have to fit all over there. You have to make sure, you have to look at every child. That's what Rabbi Wine told me over, that's what Rabbi Yaakov said, because he was very much on the idea that you have to produce people who bring out their uniqueness, right? So since everybody um, is unique, and now we've come to the conclusion that you have to bring out your uniqueness, you're obligated to say Bishvili Nivraola more you're obligated to go in God's ways and bring out your own uniqueness, right? Of course, everybody really wants to know, okay, how do I do that? How do I find out my uniqueness? Now, you have to know the truth is that even the greatest people didn't always discover their uniqueness right away. It's not so easy to discover. You know, you could say, you know, you have to, obviously you have to be very self-conscious. You know, you have to be conscious of your qualities, right? And be able to bring them out in a way that is unique, Right? And again, you know, let's not assume that you have to make a, a whole change in the world over here. You know, your mission doesn't have to be like, you know, this grandiose mission, right? You have to bring out uniqueness and use it for as best as you can for your avodah Hashem, whether it's avodah Shabbat right? You have to use it for that, right? But the only way to find out uniqueness is to be very conscious of, you know, what I what I have. You be conscious of yourself. That's the only way you could really bring it out. You can't, and then then it's just a question of time. You know, some people will find out at a younger age. Some people find that at an older age. Right? People discover their mission at different times. Sometimes they discover it at a younger age. Sometimes at an older age. I think that Rabbi Yaakov thought his mission was to be a rabbi in Lithuania, and that's why when he wasn't getting enough of a salary, he tried to get a bigger town. He tried to get a bigger city. He went three to three different towns and cities and he tried to get a job and each time he was turned down. He was forced to come to America. Had he gotten that job, I probably wouldn't be here right now. 
Right? Because the rabbis who took that job are not here right now, and their kids are probably not here right now either. So, he thought probably his tafkid is to be a rov in Lithuania, and, you know, and then he finds out when he gets to America that there wasn't his tafkid at all, that everything he did in Lithuania was just reserved, in other words, it was just preparation for Rabbi Yaakov becoming a great leader in America, which, of course, you know, at that time it was very crucial because Today in America, you know, it's very, uh, it's almost taken for granted that there's great Jewish communities. You know, when, when I visited Lakewood in 1974, 75, it was 74, 75, there were, there was no neighborhood where anyone lived in Lakewood. There was a hundred, I think about a hundred Kolo guys in Lakewood and another 150 students. There were 250 students. So that was the whole Lakewood. That was in 1974-75. Today, People tell me there's neighborhoods that are more wealthy, neighborhoods less wealthy. If you're 50 and over, you have this neighborhood. If you're 50 and younger, you have this neighborhood, right? It's it's not it's not even a neighborhood. It's it's a city, Lakewood, right? With you know supermarkets and shops and everything, right? That didn't exist. In fact, Robin liked the fact it didn't exist. He wanted it to be like in a desert, like he wanted nobody to be able to come there and go there. It was very hard to go and come. The point was, the point is that. You know, um, in America today, you know, we have three, four generations after me, three generations for sure after me, right? Which um, <clears throat> which we take sort of for granted. But of course, in the time of Rav Aaron Cutler, or Yaakov Kamenetsky, or of Soloveitchik, and others, Moshe Feinstein, they were basically establishing Torah in America. Moshe Feinstein from Piske Halocha, um, Rav Soloveitchik probably more in the modern Orthodox world, and Rabbi Yaakov and Aaron Cutler more in the yeshivish world, right? In the yeshivas, right? Rabbi Yaakov had a yeshiva where people went to universities. Rabbi Aaron Cutler had a yeshiva where you absolutely did not go to universities, right? So the point is that each one brought out their their uniqueness, you know, what they had to offer. So Rabbi Yaakov was quite surprised that he didn't realize his, his tafkin had nothing to do with Lithuania. It had to do all with America. So that's... Sometimes we have to wait a while. Rabbi Yaakov was in his 50s when he got to America. So he had to take the time. He had to change courses, right? Um, so that's something you have to look for. In fact, I, I don't know if you ever heard there was a reporter, uh, not a reporter, he was a syndicated writer. His name was Charles Krauthammer. It's a friend of Rocha. He was a, he was a, a, a traditionally, probably probably didn't drive on Chavez. He was a from guy. Um, but a uh, very brilliant guy who was paralyzed from the neck down. He had, a, he had a swimming accident while he was in medical school, if I'm not mistaken, and he finished medical school from a hospital bed. He was an ingenious guy. He was a brilliant, brilliant person. And he was able to finish medical school from a hospital bed. And then he practiced psychiatry. He was a doctor who practiced psychiatry for a number of years. And somebody went and he asked him, to write an article, because he was a little bit of a political scientist, he loved politics, so someone asked him to write an article. And the article came over so well, that the guy came back and said, I'd like you to write, Charles, I'd like you to write more articles. Right? 25 years later, I read an article by Charles Krauthammer saying that it's very rare that you, you get to do what you want to do, in life, and you actually love what you want to do. And I've been a syndicated writer for 25 years, and I know that that's the reason I was put here. That's what he says. 
So he started out as a psychiatrist, and then he finds out he's really a syndicated writer, right? Obviously, he had writing talent, but he, he never used it, you know? We have a lot of talents that we don't use. Maybe we should use them, right? In fact, he writes at the end of the article that somebody asked him, a new writer for, you know, different columns in, I think it was the Washington Post, a uh, guy who w- was writing, he says, listen, I want to know, he says to Charles Prowler, Charles, how do you become a syndicated writer? How do you do that? So he says, look, I'm not exactly sure, but I think first you have to go to medical school. <laughs> the, 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 the obviously, in other words, sometimes it takes time till we try certain things, and then we actually, there's so many people like that that start off in one direction, go in another direction, because the talents that they had, they didn't bring out. They had a number of talents. He knew he could write, right? But he didn't really use it. And maybe that was really, he didn't need to be a psychiatrist. He needed to be to meet a writer. So that's, of course, the important thing over here is that we have to try to bring out um, those individual qualities we have, whether it's in Torah, whether it's in other areas, maybe in both, right? But that's why in order to do that, you have to really be very conscious of the fact. And then, uh, as Charles would probably have said, Seize that moment when you see that it's you know that it's happening. Don't let it go by, right? You say this is it. I, I want to tell you something interesting, and that we'll end with that already. Um, probably is about close to forty years ago, maybe thirty-eight years ago. There was a fellow in Chappelle. Um, he lives today in L.A. Um, <clears throat> and I was I was very I was very taken by him. I was very taken. Why? Because. I noticed something on a tiyul. He had ec- one extra of everything. In other words, there was a guy who forgot to bring a hat. He says, I just happened to have an extra hat in my knapsack. The guy forgot to bring lunch. He had an extra sandwich. He had one... I, I, at the beginning, I didn't notice it, but after a while, this guy didn't have his lunch. This guy didn't have a hat. And all of a sudden, they have lunch. They have a hat. They have everything, right? He I basically thought about before the tiyul that someone's going to forget something. And I'm going to have it. I don't remember what other things he had, but he had like, like Mary Poppins. It was all coming out, right? Um, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. He had Shabbos by my house, and there was a window that slammed when you opened the door, and he got a little bit scared. The window in the one of the back bedrooms is slammed. You know, there's a that's the way it works. So you open the door. There's a, there's a whole wind tunnel, so it slammed. So he said, what is that, Robert Schreiner? He said, you know, I have to do something. The window uh, slams. So he says, can I see it? He says, I take a look at it. I come to Yeshiva the next day. He has a piece of wood the size of the window that will fit right in. And he gave it to me. That the window, you know, you can leave it open. You put a piece of wood there. It's not going to slam anymore. In other words, this is a person who has a sensitivity to other people, right? And... He wants to do chesed for other people, but he knows how because he finds out exactly what your chesed is needed. You know, what is your chesed, right? That is, of course, bringing out a certain originality of a person, right? And I was very taken by that because I saw he, that's his talent and he's using it. So that's something I think that we ourselves have to see. It doesn't have to be a chesed. It could be whatever it could be. But the point is you have to be ready for it because when the moment comes, you have to seize it.